Bibles and turn with me to the book of Hebrews chapter 6, Hebrews chapter 6, verse number 13. As you're turning there, I'll acknowledge a couple of things, in fact, three. One, this is a lengthy passage that we're going to be looking at this morning, which is going to limit, to some extent, our ability to deal with some of the complexities here. But I promise you, those gaps have been filled in weeks past or will be filled in weeks to come. Two, this is admittedly a challenging passage for interpretation. In fact, this is the passage, this is the concept that the writer of Hebrews had in view when he said, we have a great deal to say about this and it's difficult to explain. So there are some interpretive challenges there. Again, I won't provide explanation for everything in the passage that we're going to read, especially in those parts that are directly related to content that we'll cover in the weeks ahead. So don't grow impatient if you have unanswered questions at the conclusion of our time together. However, in spite of the length of our passage and the complexity of its content, there are some very, very straightforward elementary gospel principles that are taught in this passage that we simply cannot afford to neglect in the time that we have together. So stay patient and follow along as best you possibly can. Grant me your attention for the first few minutes as we deal with some of the complexities. And in the end, when we land this passage, we'll do so in a way that I think you'll find relevant and helpful, and it will provide us with an opportunity at celebrating the power of the gospel. Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse number 13. If you're able, join me in standing out of respect and honor for the reading of God's word. Here the Bible says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater to swear by, he swore by himself, I will indeed bless you, and I will greatly multiply you. And so, after waiting patiently, Abraham obtained the promise. For men swear by something greater than themselves, and for them a confirming oath ends every dispute. Because God wanted to show his unchangeable purpose even more clearly to the heirs of the promise, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that through two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to seize the hope set before us. We have this hope as an anchor for our lives, safe and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. Jesus has entered there on our behalf as a forerunner because he has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham and blessed him as he returned from defeating the kings. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, his name means king of righteousness, then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace without father, mother, or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, remains a priest forever. Now consider how great this man was. Even Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the plunder to him. The sons of Levi who received the priestly office have a command according to the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brothers, though they've also descended from Abraham. But one without this lineage collected tents from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. Without a doubt, the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, men who will die receive tents. But in the other case, Scripture testifies that he lives. And in a sense, Levi himself, who receives tents, has paid tents through Abraham, for he was still within his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. If then perfection came through the Levitical priesthood, for under it people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to appear said to be in the order of Melchizedek and not in the order of Aaron? For when there is a change of priesthood, there must be a change of law as well. For the one these things are spoken about belong to a different tribe. No one from it has served at the altar. Now it's evident that our Lord came from Judah, And Moses said nothing about that tribe concerning priests. 
And this becomes clearer if another priest like Melchizedek appears, who doesn't become a priest based on legal command concerning physical descent, but based on the power of an indestructible life. For it has been testified, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So the previous command is annulled because it was weak and unprofitable, for the law perfected nothing. But a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. None of this happened without an oath, for others became priests without an oath, but he became a priest with an oath made by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. So Jesus has also become the guarantee of a better covenant. Now many have become Levitical priests since they are prevented by death from remaining in office, but because he remains forever, He holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is always able to save those who come to God through him, since he always lives to intercede for them. For this is the kind of high priest we need, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He doesn't need to offer sacrifices every day as high priests do, first for their own sins, then for those of the people. He did this once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priest men who are weak, but the promise of the oath which came after the law appoints a son who has been perfected forever. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. The whole concept of a a promise holds together verses 13 through 20. This is not only drawing to a conclusion that conversation in Hebrews 6, it provides us with a transition into Hebrews chapter 7. Look to verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater to swear by, he swore by himself, I will indeed bless you and I will greatly multiply you. And so, after waiting patiently, Abraham obtained the promise. For men swear by something greater than themselves, and for them a confirming oath ends every dispute. The idea here is that God has been faithful to keep his promise to Abraham. And the faithfulness of God in the past to keep his promise to Abraham is the down payment. It is the guarantee. It is the assurance that God will be faithful to us in the present to keep his promise just as he did with faithful Abraham. Now, it seems a little disjointed here, but you could follow along with the logic of the argument here in the passage. We swear by something greater than ourselves. First century Jewishness and even in the centuries surrounding that first century experience, swearing by an oath meant to bind yourself, to commit yourself. It was a way of demonstrating your reliability on a given issue. Uh, We don't do this in our culture to the same extent or to the same degree, but this is something we're accustomed to in our culture. The child on the playground says, I cross my heart and hope to die. And you know that that child means that they aren't playing games. They're insisting that they're trustworthy on this particular issue. In the court of law, we place our hand on the Bible and we swear an oath to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me God. We are accustomed to this practice. But it's especially binding in an oral culture like first century Israel or Jews in the first century. In our day, Written contracts have sort of diminished the significance, the binding nature of a verbal agreement. Nonetheless, Jesus insists that our yes should be yes and our no should be no, that we ought to be trustworthy, we ought to be reliable. We learn that from the moral goodness of God, whose yes is yes, whose no is no, who is always faithful to keep his word. In verse 17, the Bible says, because God wanted to show his unchangeable purpose even more clearly to the heirs of the promise, he guaranteed it with an oath. That is, God went on record that he would keep his promise to Abraham, and God is on record that he would keep his promise to us. So that through two unchangeable things, that is, through his promise and by this oath, in which it is impossible for God to lie, We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to seize the hope set before us. We have this hope as an anchor for our lives safe and secure. 
Now, we're reminded of the faithfulness of God in keeping his promise to Abraham as a note that God is faithful to keep his promise to us. And a great deal of the point that's being made here by the preacher is that holding fast to the promises of God is one of those secret ingredients to our perseverance. Being reminded of the promise of God and his faithfulness to keep his promise is strong encouragement to seize the hope that's set before us. Remember the promises of God toward you, even in the circumstances of life that prevent you from being able to see God's hand at work. Remember there that God has made a promise, and he's always faithful to keep his word. Sometimes we can trace the handiwork of God. We see catastrophe, and we're able to very quickly draw connections between this tragic moment and ways that God might be at work, and sometimes we simply cannot see for the darkness of night. But even when you cannot see his hand at work, you can trust his promise. And doing so is a great help, a great aid in seizing the hope set before us, in persevering even during seasons of some difficulty. Verse 19 notes for us, we have this hope as an anchor for our lives, safe and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. The promise here is now Jesus. All the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. And Christ becomes the anchor for our soul. Our hope is safe and secure, anchored behind the veil, behind the curtain. Christ has entered in and bound us there. This cord of hope and promise exists between us and the presence of the Father by the work of Jesus. This notion of entering the inner sanctuary behind the curtain is a reference to the tabernacle or the temple. Its innermost part being that inner sanctuary, its most central sanctuary, that holy of holies, that place where entrance was only permitted to the high priest. And even for the high priest, he didn't go in his own time. He didn't go in his own terms. He went according to the principles set forth in the law of Moses. He only went there at prescribed times, and he only went there for prescribed purposes. Many of you will be aware that at the death of Christ, there's this supernatural thing that happens in the Holy of Holies, and that the veil, that curtain of separation was torn from top to bottom. That separation that once existed between the people of God and God was now removed through Christ's atoning death on the cross. New access was granted to the people of God that we might go to God, that we might go to God in prayer, that we might go to God for salvation. And at the conclusion of this life, we might quite literally go to God. Jesus has entered in behind the curtain, behind the veil, and he has anchored our soul safe and secure. Our hope is fixed there in the presence of the Father by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Verse 20 helps us to transition to this Melchizedek conversation in chapter 7. Jesus has entered there on our behalf as a forerunner. That is, he has gone before in order that we might come after. Jesus goes before, seated at the right hand of God, that we might come after the trailblazer, after the forerunner, into the presence of God. He's done so because he has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. This may be the most mysterious character in all of the Bible, right? There's very little said about Melchizedek. There are only two references to this person in all of the Bible. One is in Genesis chapter 14, verses 17 through 20. And there, Abraham is engaged in a conflict between himself, the king of Sodom, and the kings of other city-states in that region. To give you an idea of the level of wealth that Abraham enjoys, he raised an army that conquered the armies of four city-states in the ancient Near East. After the victory had been won, after Abraham had defeated the king of Sodom and other cities, he, he was met by the king of Salem, Melchizedek. And as they met together, Abraham gave Melchizedek, who is said in Genesis 14 to be a priest of the Most High God, Abraham gave him a tithe or a tenth of the plunder of all of those city-states he had recently conquered. Chapter 7, verses 1 through 3 follows after a bit of this. 
This Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham and blessed him as he returned from defeating the kings. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, his name means king of righteousness, then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, mother, or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, remains a priest forever." So not only did Abraham give him a tenth of all of the plunder of these cities, Melchizedek blessed Abraham in that encounter. He's called Melchizedek, and that translates in a couple of different ways. One, it means king of righteousness, but it also means king of Salem, which itself means king of peace. There seems to be some symbolic significance to the very name that Melchizedek has. But it's what's said in verse number three that makes him sort of a special level of, mis- of mysterious, right? He is without father, mother, or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God. Now, as far as I know, the only person who has no earthly father, no earthly mother, no earthly genealogy, no beginning of days nor end of life is Jesus. Now, this kind of description is arrived at because of the way Genesis 14 would be interpreted or understood in its Jewish context. Now, not perhaps in every generation or every century of interpretation, but especially in those centuries surrounding the life and ministry of Jesus, there was a certain approach to interpreting biblical texts that would lend themselves to this kind of conclusion. It is true that all of the scripture is true. We would affirm that, right? But there was an interpretive principle in the first century and surrounding centuries that said, all truth is in the scripture. In other words, nothing outside of the scripture is true. If it is not clearly stated in the scripture, it is not true. Now here's how that works itself out. Because there is no father or mother mentioned or listed for Melchizedek in Genesis 14 or elsewhere, and because there is no genealogy mentioned or listed for Melchizedek, One might come to the conclusion that he had no father, no mother, or no genealogy. That's the the way that interpretive principle would lead you to conclude concerning this character, Melchizedek. Now, the preacher in Hebrews is not saying, nor is the preacher saying here this morning, that that was entirely true about Melchizedek. It is that on paper he has no father, no mother, and no genealogy, no beginning of days, and no end of days, as the birth of Melchizedek nor the death of Melchizedek is ever mentioned in the Genesis account or elsewhere in the Old Testament. The point of all of this in the conclusion of our text is this. What Melchizedek is on paper, Jesus is in reality. Because Jesus is eternal. No genealogy, no earthly father, no earthly mother. What Melchizedek is only on paper in the imaginations of those who read according to that criteria, Jesus is in reality. One of the things that makes Jesus a better high priest is the fact that he has no beginning or end. He is eternal. He always sits at the right hand of God, interceding on our behalf. He always lives to make intercession, that is to pray for his people. That in and of itself makes Jesus an altogether different kind of high priest. What Jesus does in his priestly function is perfect and it is eternal. He always does what the priest is obligated to do, representing God before the people. He is the exact representation of the Father, and he always will be, representing the interest of the people before God. He always has our best interest in view. He always prays for us. He is always our advocate with the Father. Jesus is our eternal high priest. Verse 4, the preacher continues. Now consider how great this man was, this Melchizedek. I have a strong inclination, and perhaps more than an inclination, that although the Bible says very little about Melchizedek, there's, there's a great deal said about Melchizedek outside of the Bible. Like, we've proven over the last 40 or 50 years our ability to be inventive and imaginative when it comes to places the Bible does not speak. That's not unique to our generation or our day and time. 
If, if you let the Bible leave an area of ambiguity or, or not speak entirely to a particular issue, we delight in trying to fill in spaces when it comes to biblical text, which is always a dangerous, dangerous enterprise. It, it, it would do us well as Christian folk to sticking to speaking where the Bible speaks and zipping our lips where the Bible is silent. It's always a dangerous thing to try to fill the blanks of the Bible. But that was a practice that was well at work in the days of the preacher, in the days of Jesus, and throughout the period of the Old Testament. So when the preacher speaks of Melchizedek, although he may seem mysterious to us, he would have been quite familiar to those who would have heard him in the first century, familiar with all of the extra-biblical literature floating around about this enigmatic character named Melchizedek. Consider how great this man was. Even Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of plunder to him. That is, he gave a tithe. That's what we're talking about here. From time to time, I find myself in conversation with folks about the practice of giving or tithing, and I find that there can be a great deal of misunderstanding. I like the translation of a tenth in the place of tithe, because I think a lot of people think that giving, in general, is to tithe. We give 10% of what God entrusts to our care as a, as a tithe, as a gift to the service and advancement of, of the kingdom. That's a tenth. It's certainly not the ceiling of our giving, but it is the floor. By commandment, we give a tenth of all that God entrusts to us. Now, from time to time, I'll run into people who will argue that tithing is a practice that is exclusive to the old covenant, and we've but now been saved by the new covenant, by Christ's blood under the new covenant, and so this is a practice that has ceased. I will always point out that grace, the grace that makes the new covenant go, is always greater than the law. So if that is in fact the case, then the stakes have been raised for us with regards to giving. But I want you to note here that we have Abraham following after a practice that becomes customary and even codified in the law of Moses later, before there is a law of Moses. In an age of grace, he's giving a 10% of his plunder over to Melchizedek, priest of the Most High God. Furthermore, Jesus commends the practice even in his own ministry. Verse 5, the Bible says, The sons of Levi who received the priestly office have a command according to the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brothers, though they have also descended from Abraham. So typically, the Levites, those of the tribe of Levi, were the priest. So in the first century Jewish mind, we've got an issue. You've got Melchizedek, and eventually you're going to argue for Jesus as priest, but they're not of the tribe of Levi. So how's that work? Well, that's what we're dealing with here in these verses. Just hang on. In verse 6, one without this lineage collected tents from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. Without a doubt, the inferior is blessed by the superior. So this principle of the inferior being blessed by the superior demonstrates that at least Abraham is inferior to Melchizedek. In other words, Melchizedek is better than Abraham because Abraham gave the tithe to Melchizedek and Melchizedek gave the blessing to Abraham. In verse 8, in the one case, men who die receive tents, but in the other case, Scripture testifies that he lives. And in a sense, Levi himself who, was, who receives tents has paid tents through Abraham, for he was still within his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now hang on and stay with me for just a moment, right? Levi is present in Abraham when Abraham gives a tithe and receives a blessing to and from Melchizedek. That may sound mysterious to you, but that's really the way a lot of Christian theology works. You were born a sinner, corrupted and conditioned by and for sin because you were present in the loins of your ancestor Adam when he sinned and humanity fell in the Garden of Eden. In the same way that Levi was present in his ancestor Abraham when he gave a tithe and received a blessing from Melchizedek. So the argument goes like this. Not only is Melchizedek better than Abraham, 
The Melchizedek priesthood is better than the Levitical priesthood because in Abraham, Levi himself joined together in the act of giving this tithe to Melchizedek and receiving this blessing. The short of the long is this. The priesthood of Melchizedek is better than the priesthood of Levi. And Jesus is the best high priest of all in the order of Melchizedek, specifically because his priesthood will never end. Look at verse 11. If then perfection came through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to appear said to be in the order of Melchizedek and not in the order of Aaron. Why do we need another priest? If the law was perfect, why do we need a new covenant? For when there's a change of priesthood, there must be a change of law as well. For the one these things are spoken about belong to a different tribe. No one from it has served at the altar. Now it's evident that our Lord came from Judah, and Moses said nothing about that tribe concerning priests. And this becomes clearer If another priest like Melchizedek appears, who did not become a priest based on a legal command concerning physical descent, but based on the power of an indestructible life, for it has been testified, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, there may be a lot there in the verses that we've read that seems really jumbled up in your brain, but the brass tacks of what's being communicated here by the preacher is clearly stated in verses 15 through 17. Jesus is an eternal high priest in the order of Melchizedek, not by genealogy or birthright, but by an oath sworn by the Father and on the basis of his indestructible life. In other words, it is the resurrection of Jesus that he always was and he always will be. It is the resurrection power of Jesus that qualifies him to serve as our eternal high priest. He is a priest forever by virtue of his resurrected, now indestructible life. That's what qualifies him for service in that way. Now, what we're building toward with each verse that passes is a Jewish rationale for the uniqueness of Jesus. There is none like him. There is only one forever high priest. There is only one forever mediator between God and man. There is only one forever king of all kings, one forever Lord of all lords who can do for us what Jesus has so clearly done. Verse 18, the Bible says, so the previous command is annulled because it was weak and unprofitable for the law perfected nothing, but a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Now, there's a lot of what has been said in these few verses that we'll cover in the days ahead as we talk about the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. But what is clear for all to see in my estimation is that what's being put forward here by the preacher, what Jesus is provided, exceeds anything that has been offered under the Old Covenant. What the law could not do for you, Jesus has done by grace in order that we might draw near to God. Jesus is our only means of drawing near to God. Now think about first century context again. And you're you're gonna grow weary of hearing me say that if you've not already. But it's critically important to appreciating the substance of what's being said in our passage. For those in the congregation who are being tempted to revert back to your old ways, who are enticed who are drawn to an old way of life, maybe a former religious system, but in all likelihood, a former way of life, a culture that's comfortable for you, a culture that holds forth promise for fun and excitement and family involvement and activities with friends and various other things that we attach to our old cultural experience. If you're tempted this morning to revert back to your old ways, 
to go the way of the Israelites in the wilderness and remember the good old days for far more than they ever were in reality. If that's the temptation for you this morning, hear the preacher well. What Jesus has afforded us in himself is simply unmatched in all the world. What Jesus has done for us, your former way of life cannot do. In fact, it will only rob you of what you might otherwise have in Jesus. Don't go back. Don't turn back. Do not go back. You go back there and you take the bait and you'll miss the riches and glory we stand to have in Jesus. You go back and you'll get the end result of that system, which is death and destruction and an eternal hell. You go back and you'll miss all that we stand to benefit in Christ as co-heirs with him. You'll miss this blessed inheritance that belongs to Christ and Christ alone, who in grace has bestowed and lavished his riches and mercy on us. Don't turn back. Do not turn back. That's the message. Not only has Jesus done for us what that old covenant could not do, not only has grace done for us what the law could not do, it is the only means we have of drawing near to God. It's through this hope, a better hope, now introduced through Jesus, through which we draw near to God. This is our exclusive means of drawing near to to God, which is to say that the practices of the old covenant cannot bring you closer to God. You cannot come to God through religious practices. You may only come to Jesus through saving faith. There's more about this later. Look back to verse number 20. None of this happened without an oath. For others became priests without an oath, but he became a priest with an oath made by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn, and he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. So Jesus has also become the guarantee of a better covenant. That's the preacher teasing the next topic, by the way. This better covenant and how it contrasts with the old covenant. The point made here is that Jesus has received his high priestly office by the sworn oath of God. On the basis of an indestructible life and on the authority of the Father who has spoken, who has sworn, who has made an oath and who will not change his mind, it has been declared Jesus is a priest forever. You don't have to worry about Jesus reneging on his promises. He is faithful to keep his word. He always does what he says he will do. In verse 23, now many have become Levitical priests since they're prevented by death from remaining in office. But because he remains forever, he holds his priesthood permanently. When Jesus says at the cross, it is finished, there is so much packaged in that one Greek word. His suffering was finished. His earthly life and ministry was finished. The shedding of his sinless blood necessary for the forgiveness of our sin, it was finished. But Jesus certainly did not intend that we would understand that he is finished. Or that his high priestly ministry was in any way finished. He always, he eternally represents the interests, the needs of his people before the Father. Even as he eternally always represents the Father perfectly before his people. Jesus is eternally there advocating on our behalf at the right hand of God. Jesus is eternally there praying on our behalf as our great intercessor. Jesus is always there pleading the cause of his blood on our behalf as our eternal advocate with God. Verse 25, the Bible says, therefore, this is really the crux of the matter. Therefore, he is always able to save those who come to God through him since he always lives to intercede for them. He's always able to save. He's said to be able to save here. There's 
cause given as to why he is able to save in this powerful way, it's because he always lives to intercede for them. You show me your eternal religious figurehead, and I'll lend him the same measure of credibility I lend Jesus. You show me your eternal religious figurehead, and I will humbly hush and quietly bow the knee. But it's Christ alone who enjoys this status. He's the only permanent, forever indestructible high priest. Brothers and sisters, I want to say something to you here and camp here a moment that will seem very elementary. But I want to press the significance of this statement and make for certain that this is burned on our hearts and indelibly impressed upon our minds. Jesus is the only way of salvation. Now, you would think that that would be embraced widely or at least understood by people in and around the Bible Belt. But even in the church, there seems to be this creeping and cancerous universalism that expect that heaven awaits all of us immediately after our death, regardless of the spiritual condition of our hearts. And that could not be further from the truth. We speak universally about those who pass from life to death as though their suffering is finished. He or she has gone to a better place. Their time here is over. We even rejoice at times in their passing if their last days were especially difficult. And in the case of the believer, our celebration is appropriate. That seems to be the kind of consolation we apply universally without regard to the spiritual condition of the deceased. I'm not suggesting to you for a moment that a funeral service is the place to nitpick the spiritual condition of the one who has passed. But I do want to say to you, and I want you to understand full well this morning, that if you do not know Jesus, if you have not received the promise of God in the gospel, every soul that perishes apart from Christ does not go to a better place. In fact, if you don't know Jesus and you perish in that condition, this earth is as close to heaven as you will ever experience. And there awaits for those who perish apart from Christ an eternity of separation in a place the Bible describes as hellish, a lake that burns with fire and brimstone where the fire is not quenched and the worm dieth not. Only Jesus can save us from our sin. When we say together, he is the way and the truth and the life and no man comes to the Father except through him, we make no qualifications for that statement. When we say Jesus is the only name given among men whereby we must be saved, we make no exceptions, no qualifications. No person can be saved from their sin apart from the saving power of Jesus Christ made manifest in the message of the gospel. It's only Jesus. It's only Jesus, which ought to create in us a sense of gladness, That indeed a door has been opened unto us, a way has been made that we might receive the forgiveness of our sin. He is able, always able to save those who come to God through him. He has the power to save. And his resurrection is the guarantee of his salvation. The only salvation. Salvation exclusive to Christ and those called by saving faith. Therefore, He is always able to save those who come to God through him since he always lives to intercede for them. There's a second aspect of this promise that's equally important. It's spoken to more clearly in verses 26 and following. For this is the kind of high priest we need. Listen to this. I would add this is the kind of high priest we have. Holy. Innocent undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Dear brothers, only Jesus meets those criteria. That's the kind of high priest we need. He doesn't need to offer sacrifices every day as high priests do, first for their own sins and then for those of the people. He did this once for all when he offered himself. He did this once for all when he offered himself. 
which is to say that the shed blood of Jesus is sufficient to atone for all our sins. No matter what you've done or who you are, where you come from or where you've been, the shed blood of Jesus is sufficient to cover your sin. Are you glad for that? If you've not been given over to a spirit of the Pharisees, you have to rejoice in that. That no matter what you've done, indeed no matter what has been done to you, that there is no sin so great that the blood of Jesus cannot atone. Have you ever wished, have you ever longed that somehow, some way, you could turn back the hands of time and undo that decision you made, that dreadful thing you did in the heat of the moment or maybe with conscious decision, that thing that you did, you now see the results of that, the consequences of that, and you wish that there was some way you knew better perhaps in the moment, but you did it anyway, you thought it would result differently, the end would be different for you than it was for someone else, and you press through, and you wish that there was some way that you could undo what you had done. I've got several dozen of those experiences, but I mean the especially heavy ones. When your heart races and you just can't sleep. When, when it, it may be guilt and it may be the fear of consequence, but, but something is at work within you and you can just barely breathe given what you've just done or what just unfolded before you. And you just wish, you just wish that you could turn back the hands of time. Maybe a more relevant example would be hit unsend. Take back that call. Take back a word. Handle a situation just a little differently than you did. Maybe you've even looked back across your path. And as the Lord pursues you, guilt and sorrow grows at the decisions that you've made in years and even decades past. And you wish that there were some way that you could undo what you've done. Maybe as a father, a mother, a grandparent, you're looking now across the span of your life and realizing that those decisions you thought you skirted years ago are now bearing the fruit of a great whirlwind in the lives of your children and your grandchildren. And you wish, you wish that some way, somehow, there were something you could do to take it all back and make it all right again. There are certainly practical and real-world consequences to the things that we do. Jesus, Jesus doesn't offer to take his finger and turn back the hands of time. But he does promise to wash us by his blood as white as snow. To liberate us from our guilt and our shame and our sorrow. To put resurrection life in us. And that same resurrection life he places in us is available to those who have perhaps been impacted by the consequences of our poor decisions, our sins in the past, and even our sin in the present. Brothers and sisters, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the shed blood of Jesus is our only hope. The only hope for you personally, the only hope for our families, the only hope for our church, and the only hope for this world is the gospel of Jesus Christ. You don't have to look around long to find yourself in a place of despair. I was meeting with some men this morning for prayer, and we began talking about things going on in the world, and we just had to sort of break it up and say, this conversation is headed nowhere. There's not a lot of optimism to be found in the 24-hour news cycle. But oh, how there is in Jesus. He doesn't need to make a sacrifice for his own sin and for ours and do this day by day by day. No, he did this once for all when he offered himself. It's not that he goes in to the presence of the Father atoning for our sin with the blood of bulls and goats that has proven over centuries to be an ineffective and insufficient atonement for our sin. He goes before the Father with his own life's blood, the only blood sufficient to wash our sin away. Indeed, what Jesus has done for us no one else could do. The invitation that looms large over all of the book of Hebrews for the church is to persevere. Hold fast to the promises of God. Remember, God has promised to provide for the needs of his people, to save 
and to keep. We have this hope as an anchor for our lives, safe and secure. Remember the promise and flee for refuge. Find strong encouragement in the promise of God to seize the hope that has so graciously been set before us. But there's a call that looms large over the book of Hebrews for those who may be in the attendance of the church but who have not by faith been truly joined to the church as well. It's a very straightforward plea, and it occurs over and over and over again. Today is the day of salvation. If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the day of rebellion, but come to faith in Jesus. The invitation stands here. Come to faith in Jesus. Tempted to revert back to your former way of life. Tempted to go back to the way things used to be. Don't rob yourself of the ability to enjoy the full benefits of walking in the light of God's great glory, walking with Jesus, running your race well, finishing the course, becoming heirs with Christ, the riches of his glory brought before us in the person of Jesus. What you need, what I need, what we all need, the answer to all our problems is found in none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. We must only come to him in repentance and faith. Would you join me in prayer? Father, thank you for the message of the gospel. Thank you for this different perspective in Hebrews on the power and the significance of his priestly work on our behalf. Lord, we thank you that you loved us so much that you sent Jesus on our behalf that believing in him we might not perish but have everlasting life. We thank you, Lord, that Jesus was pleased for the joy set before him to endure the cross, to shed his blood that might atone for our sin. We thank you for the resurrection of our Savior Jesus, the guarantee of a new and, and better covenant that indeed he has done for us what no one else could do. We thank you, Lord, for his position at your right hand, praying for us, advocating for us there, even in heaven. God, I'm thankful for what Jesus has done in my life. And Lord, I yearn to see that in the lives of others as well. For the broken, for the sin sick, for the downcast, for the discouraged. Lord, for those who are just downright cynical or altogether skeptical, I pray that through the work of your Holy Spirit, you would tear back those callous layers of the heart, grant the gift of faith. Lord, I pray that you'd give all eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to discern that indeed Jesus is good. God, I, I pray that for those sheep that are not yet of this fold, you would call their name, draw them to you as a hen gathers her chicks, save them eternally, even now, in this moment, in this service, and we'll give you all the praise in Christ's name. We're going to stand together and have a time of invitation. If you would, go ahead and stand where you are. If this morning, by conviction, it's your desire to become a part of our faith family here at Longview Point, we would love to have you as a part of what the Lord is doing here. And all you really need to do in order to set that process in motion is to come into one of these aisles and down front. I'm going to be here. Other pastors and counselors will be here. We'd love to talk with you about being a part of this body. Maybe God saved you but you've never answered God's call in baptism. It's not a denominational thing or a Baptist thing. It's a Bible thing. The Bible says repent and be baptized for the remission of sin. And it's often a compelling, powerful testimony to the saving power of Jesus. Maybe it's your desire to be obedient in that ordinance this morning. And all you need to do is to come into one of these aisles and down front, and we'll show you what the scripture says about baptism. Maybe this morning you have to acknowledge that there's never been a moment in time in your life when you made a break with the things of this world and committed yourself to following after Jesus. You've never cried out for the forgiveness of your sin. If you'll come, come forward during this time or seek out a counselor where you are or even in the back, we'll do all within our power to show you what the Bible says about being a follower Jesus Christ. We're going to sing together. If there's any way that we can pray for you, encourage, or counsel, please come. Let's sing. Oh, I hear this.
thank you for your word and its truth and this time that you've given us together to reflect on the greatness of Jesus. Indeed, he is above all, the preeminent one. God, I, I pray, Lord, that he would be preeminent in the hearts of each person gathered here. For those who are far off, Lord, grant them the opportunity to taste and to see that indeed he is good. God, as we have opportunity to give back such a modest part of what you have entrusted to our care, I pray that you would make our hearts glad. Lord, as we give, may we reflect on what you might do for the advancement of your kingdom through the generosity of your people. Lord, help us to turn over in our hearts and minds, even in the act of giving, the many, many ways that you have shown us such grace and provision. You are a good and faithful God. Lord, I do pray that the end result of your people and their generosity and faithfulness in the Great Commission would be the fame of Jesus making its way to the end of the earth. May all the world know that Jesus is King. We ask it in Christ's name.